Hello and welcome back to Historical True Crime, the podcast where we take a look back at history's darkest crimes and criminals. I'm your host, Lizzie, and we've got an interesting episode today. We're going to cover a presidential assassination that I had never heard of. Today's episode will be about the murder of President James Garfield and his assassin, Charles Guito. A failed missionary, insurance salesman, and lawyer named Charles Guiteau shot President James A. Garfield as he entered the Baltimore and Potomac Railway Station in Washington, D.C. on the morning of July 2, 1881. Garfield had only been president for four months, and he was preparing to depart from Massachusetts on a family vacation. James and Harry, the president's two young sons, accompanied him on this trip. As soon as he arrived at the station, Guito came up behind Garfield and shot him twice in point-blank range. But who was Charles Guito, and what motivated him to kill President Garfield, who was in office for such little time? How was it possible that he was able to arouse such a strong reaction? Well, here's what we do know about Charles Guito. He was born on September 8, 1841, in Freeport, Illinois, and was raised by his father, Luther Guito, after the tragic loss of his mother in 1848. His mother, Jane Guito, suffered from a mental disorder known as psychosis, which caused a loss of contact with reality and difficulty with social interaction. As Charles grew older, it seemed quite possible he had inherited his mother's illness. Charles was always a little awkward and would frequently stutter, which resulted in harsh beatings from his father, when he was unable to say a word correctly or without a stutter. Luther would also physically discipline Charles for what he saw as a lack of religious piety. Charles grew up and attended the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, but it's there that he quickly lost interest in academic life. Guiteau spent his early years working for his father, who had numerous posts in both the private and public sectors. He left the university in 1860, and joined the Oneida community, a religious commune in Oneida, New York. The Oneida community, also known as perfectionists or Bible communists, was a utopian religious group that originated from the Society of Inquiry, which was founded in 1841 by John Humphrey Noyes and several of his followers. Uh, Forgive me, but I'm going to go on a bit of a tangent here about the Oneida cult because I just find it fascinating. It's while attending Yale that Noyes developed a fresh and new perspective on the path to salvation that he called perfectionism. He believed that at the point of conversion, man attained a state of sinlessness or perfection. Noyes was rejected by Yale for ordination when he proclaimed this idea while a student at the Yale Divinity School. Noyes is supposed to have accepted this philosophy in part because he refused to admit that he himself was a sinner, since he was unable to elicit from within himself any sense of profound shame or anguish. Whatever the motivation behind his adoption of this theory, it served as the cornerstone for all of his future endeavors. Additionally, he grew to believe that the second coming of Christ had already happened, within a generation of Christ's earthly mission, and was not a future occurrence. However, it's Noyes' views on sexual relationships uh, that made him well-known. 
Although he believed that sex was extremely vital, he was opposed to monogamy and the assumption that one man and one woman should form a deep bond with one another. His ideas were put into practice in his cult, where each woman was married to each man, and each man was the husband of each woman, resulting in what he called complex marriage, or what we probably know today as free love. According to Bellamy in his article, Garfield's Assassin Sees Deed as a Special Duty, even though Guiteau was excited about the idea of engaging in complex marriage, he soon realized that his options were restricted because many of the young women simply weren't interested in him. The notion that everyone at the commune was expected to assist with even the most menial of jobs added to Guiteau's dissatisfaction. He sends a letter to Noise, claiming that since he was sent by God to assist him, he shouldn't be required to perform any kind of menial labor. Guiteau was frequently referred to as an egotist and accused of being egotistical during several of the group critique sessions. He'll leave the community in April of 1865, feeling belittled and insulted. After leaving the community, he tries to launch the first theocratic newspaper in the country, but his efforts are unsuccessful. Guiteau will then move to New York and eventually become very bitter towards the United community filing what many would consider to be a frivolous lawsuit, seeking $9,000 in compensation for his six years of service at the commune. Guiteau in Oneida was described as moody, self-conceited, unmanageable, and masturbation addicted by noise in his affidavit in response to the lawsuit. Guiteau continued to write irate and threatening letters to the community, blaming it for all of his personal issues, including having no family, being unable to find productive employment. However, Guiteau's lawyer would eventually drop the case after realizing it was a completely hopeless cause. In an effort to achieve his stated objective of wiping out Oneida, he would write letters to newspapers, the Attorney General in Washington, ministers, state politicians, and anybody else Guiteau thought might be able to help. Ultimately, he doesn't succeed in getting any kind of outcome that he desires. After a few years of surviving on an inheritance and a brief stint selling newspaper subscriptions, Guiteau makes the decision to become a lawyer in 1868. He goes back to Illinois to start his new job, working there as a legal clerk for a while before taking the bar exam. Now back then, there were only three questions on the bar exam, and he was able to successfully answer two of them. Therefore, Charles Guiteau obtains his law license. He'd also go on to marry Anne Bunn, a librarian at a neighborhood YMCA in 1869. Their marriage, though, is doomed from the start. When she began to question his methods, he started to put her in a closet for several hours at a time. He was also emotionally and physically abusive to Anne, She would go on to divorce him five years later when she learned that he had seen a prostitute. After his divorce, Guiteau stayed in Wisconsin with his sister and her husband, when bizarrely in 1875, he holds an axe gently above his sister's head as she goes to pick up some firewood he had thrown on a sidewalk. She turns around, drops the wood, and sprints inside when she notices the expression of a wild animal in his eyes. His sister Frances considers taking him to Chicago to stand trial, because a jury would undoubtedly rule him insane. 
Guiteau, however, did not want to spend the rest of his life in an institution and instead flees from his sister's house. Guiteau's legal and journalistic careers are worthless, and he once again had neither a home nor any money. He decides to start giving speeches in an effort to raise funds by taking advantage of well-attended religious revival meetings. However, Guiteau's ideas are largely lifted from Oneida founder John Noyes. Again, he's not very successful at this endeavor and doesn't really raise any money. Over time, Guiteau will shift his attention from religion to politics and joins the Republican Party. Here's where future President Garfield enters the picture. Guiteau, who had been a Republican his entire life, supported the Stalwarts, the party's most conservative wing. Guiteau penned letters and speeches in support of their plan to put Ulysses S. Grant back in for a third term as president. But Guiteau would change sides and decide to back Garfield after the moderate Republicans narrowly beat the stalwart faction and put Garfield on the ballot. Garfield goes on to win the presidency, and Guiteau thinks that Garfield's win is largely due to a speech he gave in August of 1880 that honestly went largely unheard. Guiteau was confident he was on the verge of grandeur he had sought his entire life despite the lack of any logical evidence to imply this was even possible. Guiteau headed for Washington, D.C., where he would be in a position to receive his benefits, as he was confident that the Republican Party, and Garfield in particular, would be in his debt for helping Garfield win the presidency. Guiteau claimed in a letter to Secretary Blaine and President Garfield that he was entitled to the job of Austrian consul, on account of his services rendered during the canvas. Then, as personal tribute for his efforts, he continued, he believed that he should be given the consular role. However, he soon came to the conclusion that Paris would be an even better fit for him. And on March 10, 1881, Guiteau arrived at the White House and requested a meeting with the president. He presented the president with a copy of his pamphlet, Garfield Against Hancock, which had the words Paris, Consulship, and his name on the front. He took a seat and announced that he was a candidate for the job as the president silently read the document. A few minutes later, Guiteau suddenly gets up from his chair and leaves without saying anything else. Guiteau would also pay Secretary Blaine a personal visit at the State Department at the end of March, giving the secretary a copy of his booklet and once again expressing his interest in the Paris consulate. Guiteau begins to frequently drop by Secretary Blaine's office after the later had yet to make a decision. But he would be courteously informed by Secretary Blaine that the topic of consulates just hadn't been discussed yet. Again, in Bellamy's article, uh, he states that Secretary Blaine had had enough by May 14th. When Guiteau asks if there's anything new to report, Blaine replies, quote, never speak to me again on the subject of the Paris consulate. In a furious reply, Guiteau says, quote, I'm going to see the president about this. Guiteau promptly makes his way back to his boarding house and hurriedly writes the president a letter informing him of Secretary Blaine's actions. But Guiteau will discover that his access to the president has been blocked, and he is still reeling from Secretary Blaine's rejection. It's then that he realizes his hopes of receiving a political position have been dashed. Guiteau claims that the only reason his request had been turned down was because he was a stalwart and that killing the president 
was the only way to put an end to the strife within the Republican Party. Guito was certain that it was God's plan for him to kill President Garfield, and he decides to try and get a religious book published. The Truth, a companion to the Bible, which was merely a plagiarized replica of a book that was authored by Onita leader John Noyes. He attempted to sell them on the streets of Boston after having thousands of copies printed. After failing at that endeavor, he goes back to Washington, buys a gun, and waits for a chance to gain the fame he always believed he deserved, while at the same time saving the Republican Party. President Garfield will be fatally shot by Charles Guiteau on July 2nd, 1881, just four months after taking office as he traveled to New England with his family. The first shot grazed Garfield's arm, while the second bullet would land in his back and lodge behind his pancreas. Guiteau will surrender to police, stating, quote, I am a stalwart. Chester A. Arthur is now president of the United States. Garfield would be transported back to the White House, and he's still alive. Hygienic practices used in modern medicine are not part of medical practice at this time. In an effort to locate the bullet, doctors would insert a variety of unsterilized devices and their own unclean, ungloved fingers into the president's back wound. The president was in excruciating pain every day as his three-inch bullet hole grew into a one-foot, eight-inch long cut that oozed pus since Garfield's doctors refused to use any kind of anesthetic, even though that practice had been around since around the 1840s. Although it can be easy to write off Garfield's medical staff as inept, but it's likely that their prejudices against handwashing and sterilization were very common among American doctors until around the mid-1890s, when doctors started to generally understand the necessity of sterilization and cleanliness. According to an article for Salon by Rosa, the doctors undoubtedly had Garfield's best interests in mind, since they even asked Alexander Graham Bell, a famous inventor, to create a crude metal detector in an effort to trace the bullet's route. The president's doctor, Dr. Bliss, objected to Bell passing the instrument over all of President Garfield's body because he said they already knew that the bullet was on the president's right side. In reality, the bullet had entered Garfield's body through his first lumbar vertebrae on his right side of his spine, but traveled through to his left side and was finally lodged in his abdomen. Furthermore, it's doubtful that it would have made any kind of difference, even if they had let Bell pass his device all over Garfield's body. The doctors kept poking and prodding the president until he eventually died of an infection because there was just no sure way to find the bullet. On September 19, 1881, President Garfield died suddenly from septic blood poisoning, which was likely made worse by the doctor's decision to restrict his intake of solid food in case the bullet had perforated his intestines. Garfield was only fed, for the final two months of his life, beef bouillon, whiskey, milk, and egg yolks. And one source said he had opium drops pushed up his anus. He shed almost 80 pounds throughout that time. Eventually, it was a heart attack and the rupture of his splenic artery that became the cause of his eventual death. Dr. Ira Ruckow, a medical historian in 2006, told the New York Times that Garfield was basically starved to death by his doctors, 
and that he had had such a non-lethal wound that in early 20th century America, he would have been home in a matter of two to three days. After Garfield died, Guiteau is formally charged with murder, and on October 14, 1881, he is officially indicted. Guiteau enters a not-guilty plea, and on November 17, 1881, the trial gets underway in Washington, D.C. This was one of the earliest high-profile trials in the United States where a defense was based on the claim of temporary insanity. One of the main reasons for the conflict between Guiteau and his defense attorneys was his adamant insistence that while he was legally insane at the time of the shooting, since God had taken away his free choice, he was not actually medically insane. It would have been difficult to obtain an acquittal for insanity in 1881. The government merely needed to demonstrate that the defendant recognized the repercussions and illegality of his actions under the current standard known as the McNaughton Rule. Guito faced practically insurmountable challenges to pass that test because he was aware that it was unlawful to kill the president He was aware that the president might lose his life if he drew out his gun and fired. In addition, Guiteau had planned the assassination and waited for the right moment to strike. Guiteau argued throughout the trial that President Garfield died as a result of the issues brought on by his doctor's negligence. He was equally sure that because he had been carrying out God's instructions, he couldn't be held liable. Despite his insistence on his innocence, The jury finds Guiteau guilty after months of testimony and numerous outbursts from the defendant. Guiteau is hung on June 30th, 1882. The National Museum of Health and Medicine in Maryland received Guiteau's body and bleached the skeleton while preserving his brain and an enlarged spleen. The museum positioned these in storage. The Muter Museum in Philadelphia still has a jar filled with pieces of Guiteau's brain on exhibit today. And that brings us to the end of the life and crimes of Charles Guiteau and the assassination of President Garfield. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you did, please remember to review, rate, subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have any feedback or a case suggestion, you can find us on Instagram at historicaltruecrimepod or reach us by email at historicaltruecrimepod at gmail.com. And we'll see you next week for another dark and notorious case from history. We'll see you then.